You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is sponsored by Antioch University's Low Residency MFA Program in Creative Writing. Want to learn how to write fiction, nonfiction, poetry, young adult, screenwriting, or playwriting in a two-year program that's mostly remote? Apply by visiting antioch.edu slash apply. Hi, my name is Amina Safi, and I wrote, This is All Your Fault. Amina Safi is a Muslim-American writer who explores art, fiction, feminism, and film. She's the winner of the We Need Diverse Books short story contest. She lives in Los Angeles, California with her partner and two cats. She is the author of Not the Girls You're Looking For, Tell Me How You Really Feel, This Is All Your Fault, and the forthcoming reclaimed classics, Robin Hood. Rin Oliveira is finally going to tell her longtime crush AJ that she's in love with him. Daniela Corres writes poetry for her own account, but nobody knows it's her. Imogen Azar is just trying to make it through the day. When Rin, Daniela, and Imogen clock into work at Wild Nights Bookstore on the first day of summer, they're expecting the hours to drift in the way they always do. Instead, they have to deal with the news that the bookstore is closing. Before the day is out, there'll be shaved heads, a diva author, and a very large shipment of Air Jordans to contend with. It will take all three of them working together if they have any chance to save Wild Nights Bookstore. I got the idea to write This Is All Your Fault, partially because I'm a big movie rewatcher. And I love the movie Empire Records. I was re-watching it and it struck me that the story and the people I know who are really into it were young women like me. I realized that the point of view characters in the screenplay are actually the three boys. So it's kind of their story, but there's these amazingly rich female characters. And I think that that was what resonated with so many women of my generation that I knew that also loved this movie, even though it was panned by critics and didn't do as well in theaters. And so that was kind of the kernel of the idea. I love these three young women trying to save a record store. And as it baked, it was like, well, what needs to be saved now? And it's obviously bookstores. Indie bookstores were, and still are like really, and this was pre-pandemic, but just under siege from Amazon, under siege from everyone going digital. They hadn't been able to update their online sales. There's just these beautiful community hubs that I was like, this is my space. This is my record store. This is the thing that I would want to save. And then I was also thinking, I think you always think in relation to your other books and this is all your fault for me was the beginning of the forming of a friendship. And my first book, Not the Girls You're Looking For, was very much that part in a friendship that could be the end and that part in the friendship where you think do we re-up this friendship do we keep going like we're kind of being shitty to each other to like say like I can work through this or do we just call it a day and I think they were always in opposition in terms of core story because for me this is all your fault was really about three young women who think they know each other and they each see each other and themselves in one way and then giving them this common goal of saving a bookstore means they have to work together and their their POVs on each other change and like what they see and what they don't see changes. And that was the most satisfying part from a craft perspective, I think, because you get to get in one person's head and say, I see you like this. And then you get to immediately jump to that person. Not only is that not how they see themselves, but it's not how they're moving through that moment at all. I loved that part of working on it. And I loved playing with that. And I think that was what kept rattling in my head for those 18 months of How do we take this cooler story and make it interesting and make it fun and make it different and make it my own? It's funny for me, the way I develop character is the way I develop story. I think because I think every person has a story inside of them and I think of people as stories. And so it's always something that goes hand in hand. And I've learned over the years since I am so character focused to try to develop the story a little bit more and focus on that more just because I know my brain is in the background thinking about all of these characters and it won't let me build a story that doesn't make sense to those characters. I think I always am thinking of those characters and I think I am always thinking like, all right, I wanted this girl who's 
you know, she's a bookstagrammer and she's got anxiety and she is like much more in control of her image. So that's Ren, right? She's just so self-aware and she's so on social media and she's so try hard. And I love that about her. And then you start to build people together, right? So you're like the person that's almost in opposition, but like not quite an opposite is someone else who cares deeply. And that's Daniela. And she cares so much about her poetry but she like holds it all inside and she has this like cool girl veneer. And obviously those two people are going to butt heads. And then I threw in a third character who is Imogen. She's really just trying to make it through the day and she's really dealing with what it is to, and maybe this is just my own experience. There were times when I dealt with depression where it wasn't a big sweeping narrative. And I love those books, by the way, because I think they're essential for a lot of people. But for me, it was like, sometimes you're just trying to get through the workday. You were just trying to get from one moment to the next. And it wasn't like a huge, big struggle. It was just, I'm depressed and I'm clocking in and I'm trying not to take this out on everyone I know right now. She's in the mix too. And it, watching them all realize that what they show on the outside isn't what's on the inside and watching them realize that everyone's going through some shit that you can't always see was really integral to the idea of each of their characters and the idea that each of them working together build a bigger story and also build their own growth and their own understanding of themselves. I'm a big believer in working on the next project or like filing the next project and getting it in your head while you're working on the previous project. For me, a lot of that is because I need thinking time and thinking time is really, really important to me. And you don't get that on a traditional publishing schedule, especially in young adult where a lot of the times they just want you to write a book a year and I can write at that pace, but I can't think at that pace. So for me, it's sort of like, as soon as I sell the one before I start thinking about the next one, I have that baked in like 18 months at least of think time. Cause that is one of the few parts of the process that I cannot personally speed up. Some people can, but it's the part that like really needs to incubate. I always call it rendering kind of. It's like I have to put all the data in there and then just like leave it for a while. I don't know if you remember in the Lord of the Rings with like the battle sequence where they had to like put all the computing in and all of the programming and then just like wait a month to see if the battle would turn out. That's how like writing a book feels to me. I'm like, okay, it's got all these little bits and then I let it in there and hopefully something good comes out in 18 months. I started putting this book down on paper in August of 2019 because I took advantage of going to a family wedding in Utah and we rented an Airbnb so it was like me and my little mini writing retreat <laughs> everyone was getting up and having breakfast and I was scribbling away in a notebook in the mornings for me the physical writing process of doing pages is one of those things that is the same and different every time I'm not a process person. So I've met enough writers in my life to know that some people sit down and genuinely they write a book the same way every time and it just works for them. And God love them because that does not work for me. But by the same time, I've learned that there are certain pitfalls, I guess. And there are certain things that I can avoid or there are certain things I can speed up in the process understanding how to use an outline or how to use it like a short draft to make my writing process go a little faster in a place where it's easy to make it faster is one thing I've learned. And that is the thing I love about professional writing and professional authordom is that I have been able to sell books on proposal and selling a book on proposal means I have the characters laid out. I have the outline generally laid out and the sense of you know what my genre is I have a sense of what the log line of or the sort of single line pitch of what that book is I usually write my flap copy then too so that kind of cover copy that you see on a book I have that written then so I can kind of gauge if I'm delivering on my promises I can gauge the answers to questions that come up in the story that I've maybe already answered that I love and that keeps me honest and that helps me so much in the drafting process. I did do a thorough outline before I started crafting the prose in the sense that like I knew the structure, but they were one line sentences. They weren't paragraphs, but they were very much like, this is what needs to happen in the scene, both emotionally and sort of physically in terms of what's going on with the bookstore. So it's like, this is what the character's going through emotionally. And this is the action that they take. 
So in that sense, it was really thorough, but I, I am someone who also needs to give myself space for discovery. So my outline cannot be something that sort of comes down from on high and I have to listen to hundred percent. I have to have that flexibility to change things because for me, things inevitably change. And I learned from that book the hard way that you can build a story, but if you are using two character points of view, there are parts of that story that one character can or cannot see depending on where you are. And I had to rework parts of the plot because of that. I had an outline for that book because I used the outline to sell it. But there were pieces of that outline that like heavily skewed towards one character and not the whole time, but there would just be chunks of like section where it was like only one character can see this and I need to be in the other character's head because I wanted it to be that balance of she said, she said in that one. Having learned that lesson the hard way, <laughs> the first thing I did was I did the idea of like 30 beats, 30 scenes from cinema writing. It just divided really well. I was like, I have three characters. They each get 10 major scenes that drive their individual plot forward. And that will build to basically 30 scenes or 30 chapters that become this overarching story. It didn't exactly turn out like that. I think it's like 32 chapters or 30. It's not perfect but it was just my way of trying to take that chaos and find balance in it and not overly skew towards one character or another and kind of give them each equal airtime. I started with that and it was basically like Daniela one, Rin one, Imogen one, and then I each gave them 10 and I built their plots like kind of in a column. So there are three columns. And then I took those and I tried to see where they slotted in together. They didn't have to always go in the same order, but I had to have each of them get airtime before I moved on to another kind of triplet of three. And then I bookended it with a fourth character who has the epilogue and the prologue. And that was where it started. So that way I wouldn't lose my way. And it's a 24 hour book. After that, I put timestamps on all of it because you also realize that sometimes you're overly waiting the morning or there was like nothing in the in the evening and I had to kind of relook at it and look at the timeline and see how time works which is if any of my copy editors were on this call right now they would, they're always the ones that are like did you know that this was actually Tuesday and not Thursday and I'm like I had no idea that you said it you said two days had passed and that would make this Tuesday and I was like did I, did I say that earlier? I don't know how time works. So that was actually really, really detail work that I hated of making sure the time markers worked, making sure what happens in a work day could happen in this book. And I think I did all of that really awful, boring stuff up front. So I didn't have to think about it during like the fun getting in the character's head part because I'd already had the timestamps. I already had the flow. I already had the structure, which meant I could go nuts in my own sandbox, but I built that sandbox so I could not have to worry about it. Sometimes when I'm worried about something, it comes through in the writing. I don't know if you've ever had this, but it's like, if I'm worried about how someone's going to move through space, it permeates what I'm writing. And whoever I give it to read is like, wait, how, how does the space work? How are the doors laid out? I'm like, you just like zap. It's like my anxiety went into that and you are now reading it. And I just wanted to remove that for myself so people could have fun and people could just fly through the book and not worry about the structure of it. But the structure was the most important piece to get down from the get-go. My first book was, I think, 90, it landed at 94,000 words, which is really long for a young adult contemporary novel. But because I couldn't just stay in one character's POV and because I had this time limit, I think this one was 75,000 words, which is like, Normally I'm probably closer to 80, 85, but that was, that one's definitely the shortest one, I think because of the structure. I know there's a big thing in writing of if you're a plotter or a pantser, and I actually always think of it in terms of, and I think this is because I started out in art history, but are you an architect or are you a sculptor? And I always think of myself as a sculptor because a sculptor kind of has to have a plan, right? You see the, you see the marble and you, you start to see the fault lines in it and you see the way you can use it. And so you kind of have to understand the structure of it in order to start whittling away at the stone. But by the same token, sometimes you're in there and you're like, I thought I was making an ear and it turns out it's hair. So that's cool. But like an architect needs to follow the plan pretty much to the letter because otherwise the building could collapse. And neither one of those is wrong. They're just like kind of different approaches to making structural art. 
So that's how I kind of think of it is I need that room to suddenly realize that I'm sculpting something a little bit different than I thought initially, but I do still understand the major fault lines in the marble and to work with them and not against them. The other thing I found is that when I am generating pages, I have probably two to four good hours of writing in me. And after that, like this is drafting. Drafting is my personal hell and I hate it. It's very much that Dorothy Parker, I hate writing. I love having written. I'm much more someone who loves to edit. I love sort of finding problems and fixing them like they're a puzzle, but drafting is like raw generation. And it's one of the few parts of the process that I'm really, really dead inside at the end of the day. <laughs> like it just zaps me. It's not even just mental. It's like, it's almost physical. And that's always a hard place for me to be in. But every book is different in that what those good hours of the day are always changes. My first book was written more on stolen hours. My second book was like almost clockwork, 10 to noon in the morning. I could just grind it out. It just happened. The third book, I think, surprised me because I'm not a morning person, but I think because it was a book about clocking in and going to work, it was like truly 7 a.m., like 8 a.m., this book was coming out of me. So it was really like an early morning book and I would be done super early in the day for me and it would kind of freak me out because I would be like, what do I do now? <laughs> like, what's going on? It's okay, my fourth book. Then, you know, punched me in the gut and is like a midnight to 2 a.m. book. It was awful. <laughs> After being like, I'm so used to be like waking up and being done for the day. And then the next one was like, you can't start this until 10 p.m. Have, have a go at that. The other thing that happens to me in drafting is I tend to go in a circle. I'm Bill Murray and I'm, I'm reliving Groundhog Day. And I, I do this thing where I, it's kind of recursive. So I start working. And then I have to go back and read and do the next few chapters. And I kind of keep circling back and keep trying to fix things. And I think that that's my way of threading through the plot lines that I've noticed are coming up later that I hadn't anticipated and putting them in and going forward. And some people will say they put a note there. They're just like, I put a note to do that and I just keep going. My brain doesn't often let me do that. I think it's really great if you can just put a note and keep going forward, but I find that sometimes I have to work out the problem earlier and then keep going forward. And there's a tipping point for me. There's always a tipping point. It's like at least you're probably around the 50 to 75 page mark. I just can start going forward and I don't have to go backwards as much. But that beginning, you know, I still end up editing my beginnings a lot, even with my editor. I think maybe I just struggle with getting the stories starting in the right place. And that's not natural to me. And this is something that I've told my students where when we're talking about first lines and you're talking about openers and you read one that's so great, just don't assume that somebody did that on the first try. Most of us work really, really hard to make sure those beginnings feel tight and suck you in and make you invested in the characters. That's something that you can keep working on. It's not something that like has to come naturally to you. And it certainly doesn't come naturally to me. Though I'm usually really proud of my beginnings, probably because I work so damn hard on them. A lot of times for me, it's that I finish the final draft of whatever I've been working on most recently. So it's like that book goes into copy edits. And then I start getting the proposal together, which is the characters and the idea that I've already been thinking about from before. And then that goes to my publisher and my, or my editor, really. And then if my editor wants that, I remember this time I had given her two ideas and she liked this one. I took that, kept thinking while I was working on basically the edits of my second book. And then once the second book was out and the promo was almost basically done, then I was back to putting down the actual story. But once it's done, I always call that draft zero. And I was rounding the corner and finishing it in December. I'm pretty sure I handed it in sometime in January. And I think that like four months to get draft zero and then probably just a couple more weeks to make sure that it felt like a book to get it into my editor. I always kind of go on my own spidey sense of like what feels wrong and what stops me and what slows down. I find that if I'm slowing down as a reading my own book, there's no way no one else isn't slowing down. So I try to like do that pass before handing the book into my editor for the first time. And then thank God I'm 
doing edits and that's so much easier for me. I am really lucky and that This Is All Your Fault is the third book I've worked on with the same editor. We have a lot of shorthand and we understand each other. I would also say that I feel really, really lucky and really grateful to be working with Kat because I've trusted her from the beginning that her notes are something that she just wants to make the book the best book it can be. And I think that that's really the crux of any good working relationship between a writer and an editor is finding someone you trust working with. It's a vulnerability, I think, on both sides. Like they have to give you these notes that can at times feel like an attack (laughs) if you're a writer. And then you have to be able to take those notes and translate them, in my opinion, in your own idiom, that you understand what the problem is and you can solve it. And I love that part, but I think it's just everybody's showing the insides of themselves of what they care about and what they see and what they don't see. As an editor, she tends to flag things that don't make sense to her or that aren't working. On my first book, I got a big long edit letter, which is basically a summary of like overarching structural notes that an editor wants to change. And then Kat also puts line notes in there of, I would go with like medium sized problems that often feed into those bigger problems along with some of those bigger problems and bigger structural issues in basically a word doc. And that works really well for me. And so in books two and three, there wasn't as long of an edit letter or really much of anyone, but so much of it I understood from her notes and we worked really well and we've already communicated really well. So that was easier for me to just dive into the pages and see what she was marking up. I always give myself 24 to 48 hours uh, after reading the notes. So I open the doc, read them, get mad that my book isn't perfect, hate everything, you know, throw a little tantrum, but I just bake that in. Like, I know I'm going to throw a tantrum. I know it's going to suck that like, I'm not perfect. And my first draft of a book isn't perfect. And when you say it like that, it's like, duh, but emotionally it's like, I worked so hard to draft this goddamn book. And it turns out it needs so much more fucking work. And I I hate it so much. So (laughs) But like, I know that about myself. So I just like bake that time in and I just don't respond immediately. Like I'm just like, she'll send the notes and I'll just be like, thank you so much. I'm so excited to dive in. So like, I always respond to her before I've read them <laughs> and then I read them and I hate everything. And then I go back a couple days later or a day later. It's, it's gotten shorter. I would say at first it was probably three days and now it's probably like one. I don't think it'll get shorter than one, but it's probably a day and I go back in and and I'm excited again. And I'm like, oh no, she's totally right. Like this needs to be fixed or like this isn't working. One of the ways that I process notes too is when she flags something that I think I've done. I can't think of a specific example and this is all your fault, but I can in tell me how you really feel. There's two things. One, she flagged a character wasn't working and I pushed back on it. I was like, I think this character needs to stay. And she let me do that for one round. And then she came back and was like, this character still isn't working. And I was like, okay, I'll try it. And I lifted like 95% of the character out without changing the plot. And I realized she was right. And I was mad about it. But I find that it helps me to see the note and almost verbalize it to myself of how I would argue that she's wrong. And then realize that for me, that's the, the crux of the problem. She says like, I don't understand why why Ren is doing this here. And I'll say, well, well, obviously she has anxiety and I know this about her and like, I've put this in. And then I stop and I think, okay, so this is what I think is affecting this character's decision. I think she has anxiety and she's dealing with that by like overly focusing on the things she can control in her environment and, you know, her hair and smoothing down her skirt or whatever the action is. And then I realize like, that's not coming through. Like whatever I had in my mind, my editor isn't reading and she's not picking up in her reading. And she's also, obviously she's an editor. So she's looking for problems, but she's also someone who loves my work. So she's a pretty generous reader at the same time. Like both of those are true. So I always go back and I basically answer. Sometimes I even type it out and I'm like, no, I've done this. And I'm like, I clearly didn't do this. And then I take that as a template and I go back into the pages and I make sure that is actually what's in there. And I'm usually there's some piece of the sort of fiction logic train or the character logic train that's missing. And for me, sometimes it's because I've often do one thing three times and I need to cut out the other two times and let the time that's strongest just land once on its own. 
I would also say some of the times that, and this is just my working relationship, I think with Ken, that she's really good at finding things that aren't working that I can literally just cut. And so I will just cut them and it works so much better. And one of the tools for me of knowing I've done editorial pass the right way is she marks when she laughs in the manuscript, which I love. So if she marks something that she loves or if she marks something that like she's laughed at that was already in the first pass, I know I've made those things pop better. That's always a, a litmus test for me of if when I take things out and if when I change the things around something that I think is important that I think needs to stay, does it pop more? Does it, does it actually land with the reader? My guess is that I probably edit for two or three months, depending on the book. I would also say that it depends on the book, but for me, anywhere between two or three rounds to get the story right, every round of edits becomes subsequently more and more rapid, partly because you become more and more familiar with the story because you've read it so many times and your brain knows kind of exactly where to fix that problem by the third time or the second round. I would say that the first round of edits probably always takes the bulk of the time. As I've mentioned before, I'm not a good time person. So it always helps me when I have very final dates of turning things in that helps my brain remember it. And because editing is such a recursive process, it's a little trickier for me to say, I know it took exactly two months to edit this book. I would also say sometimes with editing, there's also a lot of thinking time, which feels like you're not working. It's very similar to drafting in that sometimes your brain really is rendering on a problem. So I could be chugging along during edits and just kind of come to a screeching halt and I realize something's wrong and I have to figure it out. And that can take days. Recently, it just took 10 days off of editing that I was just thinking and I felt like I was doing absolutely nothing. That wasn't true because then I basically banged out the rest of the edits in like four or five days. But there's definitely something about the problem solving work of editing that I really, really relish and that I do find takes time and takes more time than say going in and actually fixing the pages. And that's for me, solving the mental problems and solving the puzzles and solving the sort of logical puzzles that I've created for myself always takes the most amount of time. I would say for every book, there's usually at least three or four big ones, maybe more, but just like big problems, big puzzles that affect one another. And I have to kind of go back and solve them. But much in that kind of recursive way, as I start to solve them, there's this cascading effect that they start to help each other out. And I would also say that the second and third rounds are usually much quicker. And I would say most people usually go through with books, there's developmental edits and there's line edits. And the developmental edits usually take more time than the line edits. But if you're someone who likes to tinker with words, I bet you could probably <laughs> tinker with words for a really long time. When I finish drafting, I don't get a dopamine hit. I'm just like, oh, thank God it's over. <laughs> I was like, it's in, I'm done. I don't have to think about this for at least a couple of weeks. But like the first round of edits is usually like, the book's a little bit messier. I'm angry that there's notes. I'm angry that it's not perfect. I tend to, and I tell my students this, I tend to hate my book like at least three times. Even if I love the book and I'm proud of it, like I will hate it like at least three times throughout the process in end drafting, I usually like kind of hate it by the time it comes back to me in that first round of edits, even though I love editing, I'm just like, God, this fucking book, I hate this book. Why did I sign up to write this book? I didn't want it. And then I finish and I'm like, this book is amazing. I love it so much. Like I fixed all these things that have been bothering me. Like I, all these like thoughts that were trapped and rattling around in my head as problems I've solved. And it's just like every single one of those for me is a dopamine hit. And I think that is also why it gets faster. Cause I'm like, I just start to really like get in the groove of like how to think for that book and how this book works as its own, as its own internal logic, as its own world, how each character works. Like, I think I just get really intimately familiar with all of that. And so I think that also speeds up the work because I know the answers to so many problems that I've solved. And I know the answers to so many character questions that I've already had to ask myself. It's faster, I think, because it's built on so much more foundational work that I do earlier.
So it'll be like the first pass with a lot of notes and a lot of word crashing on me because there's just so many comments between the two of us and there's so many changes between the two of us. And then the next time there's less and then she usually does it in her email. She's like, this is working better, but I still think you haven't fixed this problem with Rin. And you're like, okay, I gotta go back in and, and fix and make sure you, like, you understand her and you, I, you, can, you can see who she is. I think that that's really important with character-driven work, not that you have to like them, but that you understand why they are acting the way that they are. I think that you can go along with people that you even disagree with their decisions in fiction, as long as you understand why they're doing what they're doing. So I'll go back and I'll fix that. And then I will send it off to her. And then in the next round, she's like, great, just some little things left. And I think that's always when I know when we sort of switched into line edits. After that point, you know, Kat will say, okay, this is great. We're going into copy edits. And that's really when you're just polishing. I can kind of sense it in like the, how I can sense it both in when she's emailing me, how big the problem sounds. And I can also sense, and maybe this is just because I've worked with her three times. Like there's this moment where she clicks over and her emails feel less anxious to me. It's like, I can feel her ranting and maybe this is just because like I am an author and we tend to just like make stories and read into everything. But it's like, I can tell in her emails when there's like an underlying anxiety and then it's kind of like ramped up that we haven't done it. And then it's like kind of ramped up that we haven't done it. And then it's like, oh no, this is great now. I'm happy with it. You know, it's like, I can feel that like emotional arc that she goes through and that I go through and they're usually pretty in line, but it's a funny thing to see in someone you work with too when you feel so solitary writing, you're like, oh, they feel this way too. Or like, are we going to get there? Are we going to make this feel like good and solid and, and real? Or is this going to be the one that breaks both of us? And if we've gone too far, <laughs> we're going to have to push it. Because <laughs> you never know. I mean, some like they've seen so many books that they know it happens and it's not a dig at any book when it does. Sometimes you really do have to just go back and fix it because it's not right and you need more time. So Copy notes are, are interesting because I think they take such a detail-oriented mind. I was making a Matthew McConaughey reference to Dazed and Confused, and I had a chapter title called All Right, All Right, All Right. But the copy editor came in and literally put the space. It was like all space right, all space right, all space right, which is like not the vibe of that quote at all. So it's always funny when they come in with that because you feel very like, you got it wrong. But then they, they come in and they also remind you about like the core mechanics of grammar in a way that's really beautiful. And they remind you why you made the choices you made. There's a character who is a, it's a character you don't see, but he owns the bookstore and his name is Archer Hunt Jr. And this person was telling me that like you do or don't put the, the period after junior, it was like the way you properly say it. And it was a funny thing to just be like, you know what? You're absolutely right. And at the same time, the thing I want is to convey that these are teenagers using that sort of honorific of junior as a like dig at this guy because I kind of see him as the enemy and he's the man. So that was, that is what I appreciate the most about copy editors. You really think about those things and you're like, is this something that I care deeply about? And it's worth saying like, hold on, it needs to be incorrect because of that voice. And sometimes it's just like, thank you so much for catching that I don't understand how time works because that's always a headache for me. Or, you know, thank you for, for figuring out like the ways in which this sentence needs to work so that someone can actually understand it. I think I like that push and pull of copy edits because it's always, I guess it is revealing. It's revealing of like how someone else who's so detail oriented sees the world and how I who love to paint broad strokes have to go into those details and like see the book from such a different point of view. Or I had someone who wasn't a copy editor, but like double checked a part of the book. And I remember she pointed out in, cause this is All Your Fault is set in Chicago. And it was like, I had lived in Chicago, but I couldn't remember how you would get from like a certain part of Pilsen down to Wicker Park. And I like looked it up on the map. And then I had her read that section. And she was like, why does she switch to the blue chair? She needs to be only on the red train. I'm like, it's those things, right? Where like, if you've lived in that city, just the thought that you would never change trains in that way is important to understand. And it's important to get right, especially for a character. And you're like, you're right. You would just get off and walk or you would just get off and maybe hop on a bus and you wouldn't, you wouldn't change trains that way, even though Google Maps tells you to change trains in that way. And then after that, they will typeset it, which is very cool as a font nerd. So they come in and they show you the fonts they want to use and they show you 
the numbers on the page and whether they write it in words or rather they write it with um, digits. And then I have chapter titles. So I love seeing the way those come out. And I love seeing a typeset. And then by this point, I don't want to read it again, but you have to. And that is really proofreading and typos. And it's just like, is this how you spell this? Are you sure? They often in that phase often give you a style sheet as well, which is always really fun to see the sort of weird terms you tend to use in that book of like words that come up that are in their own style. So it'll be like, I mentioned a poet that's like, this is how you pronounce, like, this is how you spell Walada and Mustakfi, right? Or it'll say that, but then it'll also be like, here's how you spell Dolly Parton. And I love style sheets, I think, because they're always like, oh yeah, these are all the, the references that like popped up in, in the writing of this book. And these are sort of the, the cultural touch points that I was going for that I didn't even see until someone like took it and put it on a sheet of paper and showed me what they were. So that's always kind of fun too. First three books, um, including This Is All Your Fault, I have had the same cover director uh, work on my cover and her name is Liz and she's great and I love her. What was cool about This Is All Your Fault is that was the first illustrated cover that I had. So my covers before that were both hired models and they did photo shoots and that was extremely cool and extremely fun to see them do that. Um, my editor went and she would like send me videos while they were doing it. But I think it always starts with kind of a concept and they usually are just like, here's the concept, here's what we are thinking. They call those cover comps, I think, just to see like kind of the vague idea of what they're going for. It was a little different with this one because they said they wanted it illustrated. And so they didn't give me the comp or the sketch of that until later in the process. Because I do character driven work, I usually get to write a character description of each of the characters that they think are going to end up on the cover. Often Liz is amazing and she sends a list of like what she thinks she's seen from reading the book and then I write back of like this is great here's what I would also add. I also make pin boards because I'm visual so that helps me and that always helps me dial in the characters and because I tend to write young women of color, I'm always really cognizant and really aware of like the things that are important in representing those women on a cover. So for me, noses and eyebrows are really important <laughs> and like getting the right texture of hair is important and they've always honored and respected that. But it's always been really important to me to be like, this person can't have like a button nose and I want more of that on the cover. And like, those are the things that are important or they have big eyebrows or they have, you know, this kind of curly hair. And that always helps like visualize that. I also try to give them a little bit of a vibe too, which helps for the, either the illustrator or the cover artist. So I think I put Daniela's car on hers. I think I put like, she has bleached, bleached out hair. So I really like drew from like Drew Barrymore in the nineties with that like really big puffy bleached hair. And it doesn't always end up directly on the cover. Like that's not what her hair looks like. But I think sometimes just giving someone that sense of who that character is, is great because then when the cover artist came back and I saw it, like everyone's expression looked like what it should look like and everyone's outfit looked like it was theirs from, you know, pinning their clothes and pinning the things that are interesting to them and pinning, you know, the right kind of curls. That's always been a really satisfying process because it's always felt, it's always felt collaborative in that it's like, it's not my job to make a cover and I don't know at the end of the day, like a cover is meant to help sell the book. And that's not my area of expertise. I'm not like a commercial designer and nor would I be great at that. But having someone listen and understand like, here's the things that I think are the top most important things and translating that and making it both a piece of commercial design and a piece of art is always just super cool to see. This one was a weird one because this is all your fault was delayed because of the pandemic. So it was supposed to come out in June came out in October and we were still in lockdown inside in October. <laughs> so that was just strange because it's probably the first book that I wrote that I didn't really go out and see it in bookstores. What was really nice was we did a digital launch and there was a ton of people that showed up, which was a huge surprise to me just because we're all stuck inside and it's pretty easy to forget what day it is and whether or not we're wearing pants. So it was nice when like people still showed up for a Crowdcast event at a uh, Skylight. So that was, that was a delightful celebration. I had some friends come over and you can kind of see it up there, but they made me a sign. So they brought me some baked goods and made me a sign. And that felt like a great way to demark that the book was out in the world, even though, you know, 
it's mostly being shipped to people. <laughs> I think it was, it was different. It was, it was weird. Even the last time I was dropping off books more in, in little free libraries, everything just has felt, I think, almost surreal. And it's almost odd that this book is out. It both feels like this book has been eternally out and somehow this book never came out. Like I can't, I can't quite explain it. I don't know if that's a pandemic thing or not. And I think I'm still processing that probably because I'm still processing 2020. And then also I was already working on the next thing. So it's like my brain is in, in that different space while this book is going out into the world. I would say that this book took a little bit longer to find its readers. I think that that's pretty natural given the distribution chain being so disrupted. But I do feel like I've seen people finding this book that need to find it, which has been really nice. And I think that's the great part about the internet. And I think that's the great part about being, for me on Instagram, it's like seeing people message me or tag me in photos and like seeing the right readers find this book. It just wasn't as quickly as the readers finding my second book. My relationship with my readers, I try to both be accessible in certain places where like Instagram, or back when we had book events um, where I took the time to talk to them. And I've always really, I just appreciate anyone taking the time to read and engage with my work. I think that that is not a small thing. And I think that that is not a small ask. I'm not someone who has a street team. I'm not someone who has a Facebook group. I'm not someone who specifically creates an online community for my fans. Um, and that's really wonderful for people who do. It's not something that I think I would enjoy spending my time in that way. But I love interacting with people who tag me in photos that they've taken and I try to engage in that way. And I, I try when people message me to engage, I don't always get to every DM. I try to cultivate spaces where I am available and available in that sort of professional capacity as an author and available, available to listen as a human being because that's the thing about readers is yes, you're selling a book, but you're also, when people love your work and when I loved author's work, it's because there's something in there that you feel seen about. Like that book saw something inside of you that made you feel less alone or made you laugh or made you cry. It made you feel something that you needed to feel, even if it wasn't directly, I am this character. Like it took you on the adventure you wanted to go on. It taught you about words in a way you didn't know that someone could play with them in that way. Like whatever it was, like you felt seen, you felt engaged in that way. And I think that that's an important thing to acknowledge with, with readers and with any kind of art or entertainment is that that experience that you generated for them is very real and I think I, I'm always very conscious of like, what is my personal life and what is my professional life? You just have to find the one that's right for you about what you do and don't share on the internet, what you do and don't engage with and how you are and aren't accessible. And also knowing that they can change and they can shift over time and what you start out feeling protective of maybe changes and maybe you're more open about it later. And maybe you realize you need to be more protective of other spaces and other, sometimes it's time, sometimes it's personal life details. Like I don't, I don't know what those things are for you, but I think thinking about those things and understanding what your resources are that you want to protect and what your resources are that you feel really good about sharing in the world is, is important in, in a digital age. I would say that one of the few pieces of advice, of writing advice that I can give universally is always put your butt in the chair. It's probably one of the few generic pieces of advice that's always true and uh, finish it. I would say you learn a lot from, from finishing, especially that first book. I think there is always a time and a place to learn when something isn't working and learn when you're not, when you're trying to make fetch happen. And I think that that's an important skill of, of understanding how to properly abandon and give up on a work. I think that that is important, uh, but I think you learn to do that by finishing whatever that first piece of work is. I think getting all the way to the end and not just 85% the way done is really important. There's something about, especially the first work you try of just letting it be bad and letting yourself get to the end and knowing that you aren't where you want to be. That's so important. Sort of the promise you make to yourself as a creator that I think is really integral to the process. And now a reading from 
This is all your fault. Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 11.59 a.m. Chapter one, a variety of beginnings. 8.17 a.m., Wednesday, Daniela. Daniela pulled up to the parking lot of Wild Nights Bookstore and Emporium with her music as loud as she could possibly take before nine in the morning. Daniela was not, as a rule, a morning person. It hadn't helped that she had gotten a message from Eli the night before while she was out and, in the aftermath, had gone from sociably drinking to basically annihilated by tequila. Wild Nights Bookstore and Emporium was closing. She pulled on a street that was three blocks back from the store because she liked that walk from her car to the door, the distance between her own space and her work life. She didn't like to park close. She liked to transition, to ease into the role. It didn't matter to Daniela that the air was sticky with early morning humidity. She took her time gathering her stuff out of her passenger seat. She drove an old Mustang from the 70s that she'd managed to pick up from a graduating senior girl for a song. She didn't even need more than liability insurance on the thing because it was made of solid Detroit steel and either she was going to go out in a blaze of glory or she was going to take out whatever car she hit like a tank. She'd been teaching herself how to fix up the old boy. It had vinyl seats and a big boat wheel. The radio was a dial with buttons that jumped the red notch down the line when she selected one of the pre-programmed buttons. The engine rumbled as she drove and the whomping mess of a car made her feel like she had a space that was hers and that would always be hers, which she needed right now because she just found out one of her favorite ways to get out of the house was closing down and there was nothing that she could do about it. Daniela pulled up the emergency brake and shifted the gear into first before turning off the throaty, muscly engine. Daniela started thinking how she liked her cars the way she liked her boys, but that felt like too obvious a piece of humor this early in the morning. So she buried the joke down deep and didn't laugh. Daniela pulled the strap to her tan leather satchel over her shoulder and pulled the bag and herself out of the car. The bag snagged for a moment on the gearbox and then the e-brake, but Daniela kept pulling, kept using momentum to get everything out in one solid swing. The satchel came to an abrupt halt against Daniela's hip, but she wasn't thrown off balance by it. The thwack against her leg was grounding, if anything. She was here, in this body, in this incomprehensible life. Daniela took a deep breath, trying to keep a ways of nausea at bay. She'd thrown on a pair of cut-off black denim shorts, some docks, and a worn-in soft t-shirt that read, Visit Crete, complete with a cartoon of a minotaur on it. And this wasn't from a quick road trip through Crete, Illinois. This was from an actual international travel. Yaya had brought it back from Daniela when she and mom went back to the motherland for a trip without Daniela or any of her siblings. These were her favorite threadbare clothes and she needed that when she had to deal with a hangover. She opened the front flap of her bag and began digging through past her notebook, her secret notebook, leather bound in black trying to find the keys to the front door of Wild Nights Bookstore and Emporium. She was the only high school employee with her own set, and they were all nearly high school employees for reasons that were beyond Daniela's comprehension. The only employee at Wild Nights who was an adult with a master's degree was the manager, Joe. Actually, Joe was the only adult, full stop. Even Rin Oliveira didn't get a set of keys. At least Daniela would always have that. Wild Nights Bookstore was still closing though. Daniela took another deep breath because she was not going to throw up and she was not going to cry. She was also not going to tell anyone. She'd promised Eli she wouldn't. She was going to handle herself and she was going to open the damn store. But her mind was still screaming. Wild Nights was closing, was closing, was closing. Daniela didn't know how she was gonna make it through the morning without telling anyone. Luckily, she was opening the store, which typically gave her time to think. Daniela was supposed to get to the store right at eight, even seven on a morning that she opened so that she could set up the bookstore right. But nobody ever came into the store directly at opening at nine, which now that Daniela thought about it, really wasn't a good sign as far as business went. And anyway, Daniela was usually the one closing at night. So she often got everything organized then. That way, it would take her the least amount of time to open the next morning. She was lucky that she never really had to take opening shifts while there was school, but then again, that also meant most of her day was taken up by school. 
summers were different though. They always had been so much more time to fill, so much more creativity required to get out of the house and stay out. Daniela's jet black aviator slipped down her nose and she squinted for a moment due to the pain of the sun against her eyes. The air was that heavy kind of humidity that permeated the entire area as soon as April rolled into May. They were into June now, so when she inhaled, Daniela got a taste of her own car's vintage exhaust and the kind of fumes that only came out of buses or trucks. Industrial grade smog, a real Chicagoland smell. Daniela pushed her sunglasses up, unused to having a hangover, much less a workday one. She swatted at a mosquito she felt prickling at her leg. Normally, Daniela led a carefully segmented life. Weekdays were filled with school, evenings filled with work. Saturdays were work days too, but Saturday evenings were for going out. Sundays were for recovery, while her mom went to church and Daniela claimed she had too much schoolwork to catch up on. But Daniela typically did her schoolwork in class. Sundays were mostly for Daniela to devote to her own church of sorts, her poetry. Daniela wrote while her mind was still fuzzy and impressionable from the night before, when she didn't have the energy to censor herself or overthink her words, when she could just write and believe in her words enough to not stop every other word, wondering if she'd gotten it right, wondering if she'd done it enough. She'd post it throughout the week, photos of what she'd written on paper, sometimes she'd doodle, but mostly it was her words scrawled across a page. The spins overtook Daniela for a moment, she reached out, steadying herself on a nearby parked car. It took two counts for the spinning to stop again. Daniela reached back into her bag and mercifully found the store keys, despite the fact that her sunglasses blocked her ability to see any real depth into her purse. She'd been searching by feel and had grabbed at her notebook more times than she cared to in a public setting. Nobody knew about Daniela's poetry, and she was planning on keeping it that way. She hadn't figured out how to compartmentalize her life for nothing. Daniela crossed the narrow flat street under the speckled shade of the big circular buckthorn trees. She rounded the corner and made it to the front door of Wild Nights Bookstore and Emporium. AJ Park was sitting against the curb. AJ was one of those devastatingly handsome artistic boys with hair that flopped into his eyes and clothes that were perfectly worn in. He looked like the kind of kid who could reveal the mysteries of the universe in his deep dark eyes. Daniela preferred boys who held no mysteries and carried no depth. They were the kind of boys who were good for one thing and one thing only. The kind of boys who a girl only needed liability insurance for. Destroy or be destroyed. AJ was too thoughtful to be the kind of boy that drew Daniela's interest. And AJ seemed to see nothing in Daniela but another one of his three sisters. They could be friends in perfect safety. But even AJ didn't know about Daniela's writing. Daniela hadn't meant to become a great secret keeper, but she had learned early that information was not just power, it was safety. So she kept from AJ too that Wild Nights bookstore was about to close, according to Eli, at least. Daniela had to assume that she could trust Eli, that he wasn't exaggerating for effect or lying by omission, but that wasn't an assumption made lightly or easily by Daniela, ever. What's up? AJ stood, he brushed some of the asphalt rubble from the back of his pants. Daniela shrugged. All she had to do was compartmentalize this one thing, just one more segmented section of her life. Easy. The same. You closed last night? Asked AJ. No, didn't you hear? Joe trusted Eli to close, alone. Told me I could have the evening off. I guess she decided to trust him or try out trusting him. Daniela hoped her worry didn't show on her face. Eli was a hellraiser, but he was basically harmless. He liked to give Joe shit and then do everything that Joe asked, or at least that's what Daniela had always assumed. She'd hate to give him the benefit of the doubt now, at the end of all things, when he didn't deserve it. A troubled expression crossed AJ's face. Shouldn't he be here though? Daniela shoved the key into the lock, but it was old and it got stuck as she tried to turn it. Stuck, typical. Daniela almost had the door unlocked and she'd almost made it through this conversation with AJ. She just had to hold on to this secret for a little while longer. She just had to finesse the key and there it was. The tumblers returned and she could shove the door open. Daniela breathed a sigh of relief as she walked into the store and the bell that hung on the door jingled. She flipped the sign from closed to open. Everything in Wild Nights was still manually operated.
If he closed last night, I don't mind him coming in a little late. It's not only me in here. You made it on time. And if I hadn't, you'd probably be more mad at me than at him. Daniela laughed. True, but I expect more of you. And why is that? Because you're so much more handsome than he is. Daniela winked. AJ laughed. Thanks, that makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Daniela was glad he was laughing and distracted. Like you don't know you're gorgeous. AJ rolled his eyes, like he really never had thought about it, like his looks were something beyond his own power and therefore beyond his notice. Daniela had nearly used that in a poem a thousand times. The beautiful boy who wore his extraordinary looks like an everyday pair of jeans and an old t-shirt. But every time she had come to the conclusion that the irony was too clean and too simple and she rejected clean and simple literary devices outright. She liked old language and old forms, purple prose, that's what her English teacher had called it. And she certainly didn't want to write poetry that could one day be studied in school and picked apart and dissected like a dead frog in a science lab. Daniela liked purple prose. Mr. Fisher could go choke on his copies of Hemingway. The bell jangled again, reminding Daniela which plane of reality she needed to be on right now. Hey guys, I'm here. It was Rin Oliveira, a girl who was moderately internet famous, at least in the bookish corner of the universe. She had a mass of curls on her head, but they weren't the wild kind. These were the kind of curls that had been curly method into perfect submissive ringlets. They bounced as Rin walked and added to Rin's otherwise insufferable levels of perfection. She wore one of those annoyingly pressed tennis skirts and a polo, like that was how actual humans dressed or something. All she needed was a ribbon in her hair and Daniela could have gagged on command. Rin was a walking, talking reminder that nobody was perfect except for people who spent their days filming themselves for content. Rin bounced up to them because it wasn't enough to be a straight A student and have an enormous bookish following on the internet. She had to be all smiles and springing ringlets too. Hi, Daniela. Hi, AJ. This last part, Rin said a little breathlessly because as was obvious to everyone in the store and potentially on planet Earth, Rin had an enormous crush on AJ. Well, obvious to everyone but AJ. Oh, hey, Rin. AJ smiled his devastating but standard smile and Daniela had to watch Rin melt where she stood. It was revolting. Daniela's stomach lurched. She was so not in the mood to deal with Rin's attempts at flirting. Daniela was not, on the whole, into love. And Rin's doe-eyed fairy tale kind of expression only made Daniela want to shake the girl and tell her that gallant knights were a thing the Victorians made up and to toughen up already because no matter who you loved, they were more likely than not to smash your heart into a million pieces. But Daniela didn't know Rin well enough to tell her this. And anyway, that morning, Daniela was barely in the mood to deal with anything other than a bottle of Pedialyte and a double dose of Pepto-Bismol. If she told Rin that love was dead, she might end up telling her the bookstore was closing too. Daniela ignored Rin and dug the Pepto out of her purse and popped the chewable into her mouth. Each spin was getting worse than the last, but she'd made Eli a promise and she was sticking to it, hangover or no hangover. Maybe there was something salvageable in the books that Eli hadn't seen yet. Daniela had been tracking Wild Night's book sales for the past year. She knew them inside and out. She couldn't believe she'd missed something so huge. Okay, I'm going to go into the back and deal with some inventory. One of you take the floor and the other one take the register. But then Daniela realized that Rin would take the floor just to try to hang around and flirt with AJ as he took the register. So she amended. Actually, Rin, could you take the register? You do such a good job. There, that would give AJ some space for the morning at least. He never directly said he hated the cash register, but Daniela could tell that AJ enjoyed having the floor and time to himself in the mornings. Too much customer interaction too early really wore AJ out. Daniela understood that. She hated most people. Her problem was she needed them. She gained her own kind of boundless energy from being around other humans, even if they irritated her. There was a kind of poetic irony in being the kind of person who recharged around others, but who resented having to recharge around them in the first place. AJ shrugged and said something that sounded like sure as he walked off. 
receding into the safety of the unilluminated corners of the store. Rin's face fell for a moment. Daniela wasn't trying to thwart Rin's love story. She just didn't care enough to help it along either. Daniela felt a small lump in her throat, which she tried to swallow along with her mildly guilty conscience. But then in the road, a terrible screeching sounded. In Daniela's experience, that could only mean one thing. Imogen was here. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.